0: Today for Spirit in Action, we're going to be talking to the author of the book, The Prophetic Lens, The Camera and Black Moral Agency, from MLK to Darnella Frazier. In his book, Phil Allen Jr. examines the history and the future of black wholeness in the United States, especially the way in which people of color have been made invisible, and how their power is being reclaimed through open eyes and lenses, like the camera that captured so vividly the murder of George Floyd. Phil's first book was Open Wounds, also rendered as a documentary film, Phil is an author poet, storyteller, and theologian, and he is the founder of the Racial Solidarity Project. He is also a Ph.D. student in Christian Ethics at Fuller Theological Seminary. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's program. Check out the bonus excerpts and uncut interview at northernspiritradio.org. Phil Allen Jr. joins us via Zoom from Pasadena, California. Well, Phil, I'm so very happy to have you here today for Spirit in Action.
1: Thanks for having me. Glad to be
0: here. And you're over in Pasadena. I, I've i never been to Pasadena. I'm from Wisconsin. I've traveled much of the nation. How is Pasadena racially?
1: Actually, from my experience, it's been pretty good. It's fairly diverse. And I say fairly because comparing to Los Angeles and other parts of the, the country I've lived, it's fairly diverse. I've lived in areas where it was probably 90 plus percent, 80, 80 plus percent white and like one or two percent black and Latino, Latinx, and some Asian. But it's, it's fairly diverse. Now, its history, interestingly, it was a sundown town. It was.
0: Oh, it was um, one of those, huh?
1: It was hostile towards African Americans and even Asians. There's a pretty high Asian population here, but its history. There's a, a history that, that can be told. But today, I'll say this, of all of the five or six areas I've lived in Southern California around Los Angeles, this is the first place I've said I could settle down and live here the rest of my life.
0: Oh, right. That, well, that's yeah. great to hear. I'm hoping there's a couple of my friends who contribute to that. Affordable housing is their issue, and they've worked around there. So I interviewed them a book about that. I don't know what it was, eight years ago or something. But it's a lot of wonderful things that were done right there, as well as other places.
1: Yeah, we, we just had a, a annual 5K run to raise funds for um, my nonprofit, Racial Solidarity Project. And we had an organization that was there promoting, and, and we're kind of hoping to partner, at least lend our voice to, for the, uh, they're exactly what you said. They're there to- uh, Affordable housing? Affordable housing, rent control. Yeah.
0: Well, folks, you're tuned in today to Spirit in Action. We're talking with Phil Allen Jr. The prophetic lens- the Camera and Moral Black Agency from MLK to Darnella Frazier is his most recent book. Of course, we need to go back and read Open Wounds as well. So one of these days. So Phil, by the first point, Alan. Alan used to be my middle name. I grew up oh, with wow. that as my middle name, but when my wife and I got married, I took the last name Helpsmeet and moved Judkins as my middle name. So I'm very fond of Alan where did okay. your family's name alan come from
1: <laughs> from the slave owner
0: <laughs> that's what i was afraid of and I yeah. uh, uh, naming is so important in yeah. being able to choose names still it's a wonderful name and you wear it well so thank you thank you, <laughs> thank you. so uh, the prophetic lens we're talking about here the lens we're talking about is both literal and metaphorical so How do we look at the Black experience? How do we look at African-Americans' experience in this country? Both what do we look through in, in terms of a camera or for movies, as well as philosophically or theologically? You're Christian. Tell me a little bit about your path.
1: I grew up in South Carolina in a Black church, AME Church, Bethel African Methodist Episcopal. It is the oldest church in my county not much younger than mother emmanuel in charleston where those shootings happened mm-hmm. so I'll actually sister church and i i went to church every sunday i had to which hey. i hated <laughs> my my grandmother more than my parents my grandmother made us go to church i think my parents made us go cuz they were afraid of the grandparents but they would say but but i didn't know i didn't really know anything about god about jesus i was just there i spoke at all the plays did the speeches I was usually one of the kids that they would ask to speak. I was always out front, didn't want to be, but they always pulled me out front, lead usher. I did the whole nine. When I graduated from high school, I tell people I graduated from church and I, <laughs> I didn't I didn't go back for, that was 1991. I didn't go back to church for until 1996. So the whole time I was in college, I was a basketball player in college, never went to church. I went to church once, During that whole time, a young lady took me to church and um, she would have been the only one that would have gotten me to go.
0: (laughs) She must have been a special woman.
1: (laughs) Yeah, she, she was. And she's a good friend today. Strong woman of God, good friend, sister to me. And That was the only time I went to church. But when basketball ended, because I wanted to play professionally, I had two professional athletes in my family got drafted to play in the NFL. So to me, playing professional sports was not a pipe dream. It was just what we did. And when that didn't happen, my last game was on national TV playing against Wake Forest and the NCAA tournament. And after that, it was gone. And so I'm playing this game all my life. Now I'm without it. I don't have the structure. I don't have the goals. I don't have the season to prepare for. Who am I now? And I hit a rock bottom for about a year and a half, not clinically depressed, but looking back at it, I was in a, a deep fog And you could say I was depressed, like mildly depressed, had no goals, no aspirations, just drinking, sleeping around with women and partying. I wasn't even really eating. And I had lost a lot of weight and didn't know it. And that's when I, 1996, I went back home. And that was a supernatural encounter to even get me to go back home because I didn't want to go. I was ashamed, embarrassed, felt like I let my hometown down. And that's when I turned my life around, accepted Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, and the rest is history. It took me a number of years to to really get it together, floundering, but something changed on the inside, I know for sure, because I could not enjoy the same things I used to do prior to that time.
0: So while you're in college, your, your career path is basketball, basketball. And I understand, by the way, cause I, it's my favorite sport. Even though I'm 68, I'd still be happy to play with you. Uh, <laughs> and you'd wallop me, but that'd be okay. I wouldn't mind. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> so your direction is basketball. What would you say after finding Jesus Christ, your path became, what's your objective now? What, what do you, why are you writing these books?
1: Well, at that time, I still didn't really know. One of the things I did, and I still do to this day, is I'm an advocate for wellness because what got me out of my funk, yes, was my faith, but practically it was working out, it was exercise, and I began to feel better. And to this day, I still, I'm a runner. I I work out four days a week, run four days a week, and I advocate for that. I push for that, but I still didn't have direction. A few years later, I became a personal trainer and I started to model. I did some print work part-time, but I- I,
0: So this is you in front of the camera now. Aha. Okay. That's a part that's not in the book.
1: It's not in the book. Yeah. I was in front of the camera, but it was was fashion. It was vanity. It was makeup and looking good for designers. But with that, I was, as a personal trainer, I loved the idea of helping people get fit to get in shape and stay healthy. And to this day, that's a part of my ministry and it's a part of my nonprofit in terms of a form of activism. So that became my my journey. That became my, my vision, my focus for the next, I'd say, 12 years or so, was fitness.
0: And I'm leading up to really the content of the prophetic lens. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that the idea must have blown in and got filled in right from the moment where we had to watch the horrific death of George Floyd. I know that for so many of us, that was a point where it's like, we got to wrench this wheel around now. There's no waiting. What was the progress to this book for you?
1: Yeah, it actually started a year before George Floyd. So I went to Sundance in 2019 for a class, doing my doctoral studies and watch films. And and these aren't films that you see. Most of them you won't see in the theaters. These are hard films. These are independent filmmakers. They're telling hard stories that stories of situations and people and things that we, we want to turn away from because they're so mm-hmm. disruptive. They're prophetic in, in, in a way. And I wrote a paper called The Prophetic Lens. And my professor and I, we talked about how Dr. King, because I, I studied Dr. King in my, st- in my research as well, and how he used the camera to expose what was happening in the South. How much success would they have had without the camera? Without exposing that, recording it and broadcasting it to the rest of the world, and so I wrote this paper, and I've I've published a couple of articles in journals, different versions of this paper, but it was the Derek Chauvin trial. Mm-hmm. When I watching the trial, keeping up with it, and all they played the images over and over again, and the jurors even said it was the images, it was the video footage, it was the, it was that. And that's when I said, I need to take this paper and unpack this some more and write this book. And so right after Derek Chauvin trial, I wrote a quick brief summary proposal to Fortress Press. They loved the idea. And then I got to writing.
0: And so the lens that is the cameras that we're watching, uh, even you said in the book that Martin Luther King Jr., Depended on one of the ingredients to the success of being on camera was that the whites in the South had to act to stereotype. They had to be violent. They had to be crushing. If they hadn't done their part in front of the camera, it wouldn't have happened, right?
1: Absolutely.
0: So the lens is, it's it can't be there. There's, there has to be human dynamics that get caught in this. Another important part of the title is the prophetic. And I think you mean this in, again, at least two ways. It's not only prophetic as in foretelling the future, but it's biblically prophetic as well. So... There's a whole lot in the book, folks, by Phil Allen Jr. The prophetic lens, the camera and black moral agency. I have to ask you to define for our listeners agency from MLK to Darnella Frazier. And Darnella Frazier, if people don't know, is the person who caught the whole thing with George Floyd on camera. If it hadn't been for Darnella's action We would have been so deprived and it probably would have been swept under the carpet, just like so many other cases have been over the years. So let's talk a little bit about this for the first half of the book. You, of course, refer to Martin Luther King's camera's presence. And I I think even in there, that's where you talk also about Birth of a Nation. But I kept waiting for Spike Lee and others to come up. And it wasn't until the last third of the book that I actually got to see many of those people. I was wondering about Shaft and all of these other things. So let's talk a little bit about the history, and I already alluded to it, Black superiority, Black supremacy. There's many different ways it gets referred to by you in the book. What would you like to highlight for our listeners for Spirit in Action?
1: Well, in the book, I talk about this idea of unseen violence, the liminal existence of Blackness. And what I mean by that is we're seen and we're not seen our bodies are seen. We're seen uh, when we perform. Athletes, actors, artists, preachers even. There's a performance there and, and, and people see us. We're seen with the stereotypes, the gangster, the thug, the criminal, with the movies and films and media news typically shows. But our humanity is not always seen. I mean, I, I've had conversations even about George Floyd and anyone who could the first thing you could you would say is, well, if he hadn't done this, blah, blah, blah. And my first thinking is, so you mean to tell me you can't see a man lost his life senselessly, regardless of what happened, that he didn't want to get in the car. We can talk about that. We can argue why. But a human being lost his life. And to me, that becomes a microcosm of how people don't see us. And so I wanted people to understand that first. And then Then there's the unseen violator. So unseen violence, unseen violator. Well, let me me back up. The other part of being unseen is what we saw with Arbery and George Floyd um, and even Breonna Taylor, Trayvon, we can go down the list, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, Emmett Till. That is a normal experience for the collective historically. Those aren't one-offs. Those are things that we're familiar with, that we see, we know, their families thousands of families, African-American families that have this intergenerational trauma, grieving, a lynching, a shooting, brutality, what have you. And, and where does that come from? What, what's going on there? What's happening there? And this is where we get into white supremacy. This is where we get into this idea of devaluing black life and prizing and prioritizing white life, white thought, white beauty, white theology, what have you. And then we internalize that. So we're prizing this idea of of white superiority. We're presenting these images, starting with the image of of a white Jesus. And so we have to wrestle with what we don't want to talk about. As a matter of fact, I'd rather talk about white supremacy than racism. I'd rather talk about the root than the symptoms. So the the book kind of gets to that. And the camera, I think, I believe the camera shines a light on some harsh symptoms that force us to have to look deeper at what's really the cause.
0: Actually, I'm going to toss in something here. I, I very seldom do this because what I really want to do is raise up your light. And I happen to be exactly on the page with the horrors of racism in this country. All the African people who suffered and are still suffering from it. The uh, intergenerational effects that that has had all of that. There's one hesitation I have. And that is the white emphasis. White has been an evolving category. It didn't used to include Irish and Italians and such. And. It also there are people now who have African blood who are not included as black anymore. They're white or they're non-black or something. I don't. I'm not quite sure what to call it. And part of my experience, by the way, is that I lived in Africa for two years. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in West Africa. So when you talk about you know 90 percent of the people being white in the area, well, it was 100 percent of the people were black. Where in the village where I lived. Of course, I'm rich relative to them, so I'm privileged still in that situation. But I actually had the situation happen where there was the president, the the dictator of the country, called everybody to get out in the streets and to decry the colonists. So people are wa- marching down the street yelling down with the colonists, and I'm looking around and I'm saying, gee, who could that be? <laughs> And Mm -hmm. I wasn't really scared in the fact that they knew me and I was friends and I was there. I was living a poverty life compared to Americans because I wanted to be helpful, right? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: But what I was aware of is that power is really the problem, power and self-interest. And in this country, that's manifested in whiteness. Mm -hmm. So I have this concern that talking about whiteness as the root of the problem is missing the real problem. And that's why you can have some people with black faces in the leadership in this country. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're good guys or bad guys. It's just, it depends how much they're attached to power. So anyway, I don't want to negate anything you say in the book. It's rich. But I, that's the one hesitation I have about identifying white as the root.
1: That's a good point. Good pushback. Here, here's the thing. Saying it's just power is the the church has a tendency to to do things like this. It's just sin and making it a universal term. The problem is if we don't name it, it can stay hidden. And because this mode of power has not only created an ideology, but it has from that ideology, a system, structures, and institutions have been built around that particular power. And that's why we have to talk about, because you're right. It is, at the end of the day, it is about power. So is when you talk about sexism, it's about power. Power, like like Michelle Foucault says, power is omnipresent. It's always going, it's, it's everywhere, always around us, right? But we have to name it. And I think in the book I talk about, there's a place where I talk about the inflammation. Right. White, white, white supremacy or whiteness. And when, I, and when I say whiteness, I'm not talking about, so much about white people or white person necessarily. I'm talking about the worldview, the vantage point, from which one sees the world and white supremacy being the ideology that was created from that. Mm-hmm. So, cause you can be black and be a white supremacist. Mm-hmm. I, I can we, I mean, we just saw what we, Kanye, We've seen them.
0: Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Kanye. Yay. Is what does he wear? What? That man, yeah. <laughs> but he, and so, he's not the only one, but, and he's
1: not the only one, but we have to name it. If we were talking about women's issues, we'd have to name patriarchy. Mm -hmm. We have to call it, I I diagnose it so that we can have the right, the proper prescription to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Um, That's my my pushback to just saying power. We have to say, well, what kind of power is it? In this context, in America, it is this power.
0: Again, as you're going through the book, you're looking at the various ways in which we look at racism, white supremacy, the power dynamics, the differences in peoples, how we categorize and mistreat and privilege other people. And all of that, folks, is in the book by Phil Allen, Jr., The Prophetic Lens the camera and moral black agency from MLK to Darnella Frazier and Phil Allen's website is com. The links on nortonspiritradio.org just along with all of the hundreds of links of people I've interviewed over the last 17 years. So please come by nortonspiritradio.org comment on this show Follow the links to Phil and the other guests that we've had, and if you feel led, please support us. You can donate to keep us going, and we depend on you. We've made a conscious choice for Northern Spirit Radio to not depend on corporations, commercial income, or on government. but rather to depend upon you, the listeners. And that's led to this program being broadcast throughout the country. Northern Spirit Radio programs are broadcast on some 45 stations nationwide in our communities, and they're specifically on community radio stations. So please support those community radio stations as well. Again, the book, The Prophetic Lens. I want to pull out a lot of different pieces, Phil, and we're not going to be able to do it justice. We've got awful lot of pages here. We've got, what, 250 pages of text. And uh, I did just finish reading it this morning. And there's so many wonderful and scary and powerful and transforming ideas that you introduce in the book. But I'm constantly struck by your closeness to them. Now, you mentioned already about the men of your generation's who got in trouble, who got killed, who their deaths got excused because the white people in power. You didn't yet talk about your maternal grandmother who did her own sit-ins, and this must have been long before what happened in Greensboro. I'm not sure what years it would have been, but uh Morellus Inlet in South Carolina. Tell about what she did, because this is the kind of thing it percolates and then it catches fire.
1: Yeah, I don't know a whole lot, but my uncle, her brother told me when she was in high school, so she was young, she was always, she was a tomboy, she was athletic, she was always a strong-willed, strong individual, but she would go into these restaurants in Merle's Let, and knowing that they would not seat Black people, she would go in and she would get her brothers or sisters to come with her. Like, y'all scared? Come on, let's go. And she would go in there and she would sit in before the sit-ins in Greensboro. By the way, I went to school. Those four uh, from the sit-ins in Greensboro are alumni of my school, North Carolina a t State University, the A&T four. Uh-huh. Uh, so, but, but long before them, she was doing that. And it made sense to me because that's who she was. Now the grandmother I knew was that same strong person but also she carried the trauma from her husband's murder. So I knew that grandmother and she was tough. She was hard on people, but she also wanted the best for you. So it didn't surprise me at all that she was that person that did sit-ins and it it just didn't get caught on TV. The the camera wasn't there.
0: And you say it a number of times in the book in different ways and so many powerful and insightful ways of saying it, but that seeing things in picture is transformative. You could read a story about what happened with George Floyd, and maybe it would or would not change your soul. But watching Derek Chauvin kneel on his neck and George saying, calling for his mother, It can't help be transformative. And so you say the pictures are transformative, and they can be transformative for good or for bad. So The Birth of a Nation, you expound upon in this book. I've never actually seen the movie, and I think I need to because I need to understand how that can be such a force for evil or how it was. Say your perspective about the movie, if you would.
1: I was disgusted. It was hard to watch. Um, it's a silent, silent movie. You can see the whole thing on YouTube. But I, I just—I was disgusted. I only watched it for the sake of writing. I wanted to know what I was writing about. I didn't even finish watching the whole thing. I, I watched enough to know what it was. What it was about. Most of it. I watched most of it. But it created this narrative around black and white bodies, and that's what whiteness is. That's what the idea of white. Because you know, at, at one point before the 1680s. There was no such thing as a white person other than descriptive of their skin color. But there was no identity called white. It was at that point, it was codified, became a legal identity marker. But my research says this idea of whiteness, it's a narrative. It's like a a story, a made up story about white bodies and, and various shades of brown bodies going back to antiquity, not just in this country, but going back even to the church fathers, going back to. Plato, Aristotle, and, and those Greek and Roman thinkers. They looked at Ethiopians. The, the narrative that we have today, that birth of a nation has perpetuated at that time, and that we still wrestle with today, fearing black men. Black men are sexual deviants. Black women and their desire to have sex, like that narrative that was placed upon, assigned to us, that goes back a thousand years the way Greeks and Romans looked at Egyptians and Ethiopians, those with darker skin, they assigned evil, they assigned the devil, that imagery, it all goes back to that. Mm-hmm. And so birth of a nation just took that, dramatized it for a generation, really already believed many of those things. And so re- reinforced it.
0: And so when we're talking about the prophetic lens, again, it can go for evil or for good. And fortunately, Martin Luther King was able to capitalize on it for good. We're so blessed that Martin Luther King did his work in this country. And I understand that in 68, when he died, he was waning in terms of influence, in this country, there'd been various division. People justifiably were upset with the slow progress. You know, you got the Voting Rights Act, but so many people still dealing with horrendous situations. But what is it that he did with the camera that was so important, the prophetic lens that MLK used to establish, to reach towards black moral agency?
1: What Dr. King wanted to do was prick the collective conscience Of America. He knew that we didn't have the resources. It would be impractical, unwise, dangerous to try to fight power, violence with violence. So he utilized, took advantage of white violence, took advantage of technology that was available, used that resource, and projected that back to, to the broader white community. The government included local, state, federal. This is what's happening. This is the prophetic part of, of the work, revealing what had been hidden, what had been kept contained in the South. He revealed that, through, allowed the camera to reveal that to the point where if there was not going to be, I think you mentioned this earlier, if there was not going to be a white mob there and if there weren't going to be cameras there, they would have canceled some of the demonstrations. He needed the white folks in the South to be who they were. He needed them to play their part, and they did. And so that was the genius in that, was taking advantage. He didn't create tension. He didn't manipulate. All he did was capture.
0: Some of his influence came via Gandhi. Fortunately, what we learned in India is you can have truly revolutionary change without picking up a gun and killing other people yourself. And I guess I just haven't read enough about Malcolm X. I've certainly read things here and there about him. Anyway, you mentioned about Malcolm X in the book that some people thought that he and MLK were adversaries. And it is true that they had different followings and so on that. But you said in the book, and I found this real interesting and I need to read up some more, that they actually liked each other and that they just disagreed on tactics. and was Malcolm X not willing to use the prophetic lens? Was he skipping that stage?
1: Well, actually, he did use the lens. He just used it in a different way. In a way, I think that is just as valuable as capturing the violence. Malcolm X, he used the camera. If you've seen pictures of him, he usually had a camera with him. And so Malcolm would use the camera because he wanted to capture the beauty of the Black community. He wanted to capture resilience. He wanted to capture the physical beauty, the aesthetics. He wanted to show well-dressed Black folks as well. He wanted to combat the images, the stereotypes that were put out there. So while King was capturing the violence and the suffering, Malcolm X was trying to capture the beauty and the resiliency and the creativity of Black people. If we paused and didn't just see them as adversaries, we could see how both of them coming together and i believe and people have said this that by the end of their lives there was starting to be this coming together they were starting to see each other's perspective they respected each other i think tremendously they just disagreed passionately on how to get there
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and i think a lot of that is due to background context upbringing if you read malcolm x's story you understand why he didn't trust, didn't like, and had that fire by any means necessary. You talk about intergenerational trauma, carrying trauma in your body versus MLK who grew up with both parents. He in the South had to deal with the racism and the bigotry, and he saw some things as well. But that that context, I think, allowed for a a, a more regulated nervous system, regulated body that Mm -hmm. could endure in a nonviolent way. Whereas Malcolm didn't have that, that same opportunity with the, what happened with his mom, um, his dad being killed. So he saw things and went, experienced some things that formed him differently. Sure. And I don't think people would take that in consideration. He wasn't about being violent for the sake of being violent. He was about violence to protect because we're, we're dying. Mm-hmm. We're dying out here.
0: And in the book, you mentioned that toward the end of his life, Malcolm X did a course correction or a change. I mean, he left Nation of Islam, which again, I'm sorry to say that I'm woefully ignorant about most of this, but he left that over disagreements on what?
1: It's said that when he took his trip to Mecca, that's what changed him when he saw all the various shades of Muslims from around the world, and he couldn't reconcile that with what was being taught back in america Mm -hmm. and i think that trip opened up his eyes and is what allowed him to broaden his perspective his vision and purpose
0: so it's no longer blacks against everyone because color didn't have to keep all those other muslims from being really good people yeah that makes sense
1: he, he got a different picture
0: there's again so much in the book the Prophetic Lens, The Camera and Moral Black Agency from MLK to Darnella Frazier by Phil Allen Jr., folks. And again, his website is com. The link's on org. There's so much here. We're just going to grab little tidbits here and there. But I'm really enjoying the time with you, and I've really been open to so many things, pieces of my knowledge, which have been limited. And again, since I lived in Africa, and actually my favorite place to go visit is Africa. I've been to Kenya multiple times and to Rwanda, and to the Congo. So I've been in places where the situation has been horrible. I visited some of the memorial sites of the Hutu Tutsi slaughters that happened. And I'm happy to say that I've got so many friends there. There's a lot of Quakers, as it turns out, in Eastern Africa. So folks, this book is something you want to get and read and take the next step. Because there's nothing like being face-to-face to really step out and learn about people. One of the things that you mentioned, cognitive dissonance may be the most perplexing collective trait of the white community to grasp. And I think this is a quote, only way to justify the horrors of slavery were to relegate their victims to subhuman level. That clicked for me. Back when I was in college, 1975, I did a paper. It had to do with racism. It was specifically about the Civil Rights Act of 1958. That's when Republicans were in charge and when Republicans were (laughs) the still good folks in that territory. In one of the books I read, it mentioned that up to the 1940s, into the 1940s, that even the good whites the whites who were against slavery, the whites who were against Jim Crow, the whites who were for humane treatment, they still believed blacks were second-rate citizens. They didn't have the intellect, abilities, senses, fine graces. So even the good guys still bought into this myth. And so, therefore, there's stuff that could be justified. Why did you put it in the book?
1: You know, A lot of things that made its way in the book were just ideas I had been wrestling with, and and I wanted to try to make some sense out of it. And I'm sure other people were wrestling with it as well. This notion of being a Christian, love, grace, mercy, compassion, and yet support or be silent with slavery. Fast forward, this notion of being at a worship service and leaving the worship service to go witness a lynching, and to take your kids to see it. I preached a sermon once and a man in the 60s came up to me in tears after the sermon because my sermon reminded him of when he was a kid seeing his grandfather, pictures of, around the house of his grandfather standing in front of lynched black bodies. So how do you reconcile that? It, it, it's still to this day. How do you reconcile saying that you are, well, first of all, how do you reconcile being a human even with, <laughs> without the faith aspect? And that being okay, how do you say these human beings are inherently less, inherently inferior to me? How do you rationalize that? Even when you see brilliant, intelligent inventors, doctors, lawyers, you see it, you know it exists, but you refuse to allow yourself to believe it's not true. And to this day, I I try to understand, I I don't try to understand anymore, but I wrestle with that. Mm-hmm. How do you rationalize How do you say they're three fifths of a human? I understand there's some political implications there, but how do you do that
0: right and to understand that part of humanity, several months ago, I interviewed a woman who's the author of a book, and this should catch you should understand that the psychology is the same thing that people use to relegate any race, any particular culture to subhuman status. The book is why we love dogs, eat pigs, and wear cows. And you start saying, well, wait a minute. Pigs are as smart as dogs. Why are they secondary? And what are the tools that allow us to do that? Well, those same things were used on all kinds of humans as well. And how do you relegate with African blood to be lesser? Well, You know, one of the phrases that I've read is, well, they don't have our sensitive feelings. They don't feel pain the way we do. Oh, my goodness. And and how do we internalize and how do we transcend then what we've internalized and grown up with? The white superiority, the white supremacy myth that's part of our history. One of the things I, I love that you referred to was a passage from Jeremiah where, the law is written on our hearts instead of on stone, that you talk about democratizing God's will, and God's presence to us. Say a little bit about that. And I, this is part of where the prophetic lens is being turned inwards, too.
1: Yeah, I wanted to make sure I spoke to the church. And I know that particularly those who are maybe more moderate and more right-leaning need to hear either Scripture explicitly or they need to have that. And I also wanted to have that as well as I wrestle with these ideas. And when we talk about the democratization of the camera, during Dr. King, during the civil rights movement, the camera was, it belonged to the news stations. Everyone didn't have access to that. Well, today, everyone has a phone. And so that democratization is, is the democratization of power. Everyone has this tool to enhance or amplify their agency. And I wanted to make that connection to this is God's work, too. It's not just about the technology, but God has always been in the business of democratizing. And so there was a time when the word was written on tablets, on stones, or written on scrolls, and, and one person had access to it, or a few had access, and they would read it and relay the messages to the people. Then here in Jeremiah, God says, no, I've written it on their hearts. I want my word, my wisdom. I want everyone to have access to it. I want it to be Ingrained in them, not just on this piece of paper and relayed to them. As a matter of fact, we go back to in the wilderness, that was God's original plan. The, the people said to Moses, No, you go and talk to God and come back and tell us what he said, right? And the same thing with Pentecost, with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was, it rested upon certain individuals. Well, at Pentecost, now the Spirit was now spread and distributed to believers. And so this, again, this further democratization of the presence of God, the wisdom of God, having access to God. And I wanted people to make that connection, the democratization of the power to see it through a theological lens that could God be behind this.
0: I'm afraid it's time for another moment of slight pushback, (laughs) but because I actually agree with you about just about everything you said, but you referred to Pentecost. And when you talk about it in the book, you talk about the disciples coming out and every person from all different countries hearing them in their own language. I'm all with you on that. But you put that as equal with speaking in tongues now, but speaking in tongues now, mostly people don't understand. It's it's kind of the opposite, if you will. And I realize that both forms of speaking in tongues, what the disciples did, and and then Paul refers to it also, you know, in Corinthians, when he's writing to them, he says, you know, I speak in tongues more than you do, and all of that but I think it's two very different things. And I, I find it very useful. The idea of speaking in tongues and everybody understands you in their own language versus I speak in tongues and only the people with the gift of translation can understand me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think the emphasis for me was just on the presence of God and the spirit was not just resting on one person as the king or the priest in the Old Testament, but the present evidence of the presence of God now. Democratize or distributed or or people have access beyond just a handful. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't so much the emphasis on speaking in tongues today, as much as it is the evidence of the presence of God. Mm-hmm. Um, like I worship in tongues when I'm alone, when I'm by myself. I found over the years when I finally learned to not try to figure out what I'm saying or if I'm even doing this right, just allow myself to just be. And when I sing in that spiritual language, there's no other time when I feel closer to God. Mm-hmm. That That's just my, been my experience. Mm-hmm. So you're right. When people are speaking in tongues today, oftentimes no one knows who's saying what. Right. But my emphasis was just on the, the fact that tongues being evidence of the presence of God no longer being confined to the king, priests, or a prophet, but actually believers now have access to that presence.
0: Well, and actually one of the reasons it caught my attention is because, again, I'm Quaker, and part of the fundamental of Quaker belief is we don't need an intermediary. We don't need a minister-priest, and you don't need the scrolls. You don't need the written because God can speak directly to your heart. So I'm all with you on that one, and hopefully when we tune into that, that leads us to step past the inherited damage that we've got both as white and non-white peoples. And God can transform us in that way.
1: Absolutely. At the core of it, it is the work of the Spirit. I mean, if we want to get down to it, it, it there is a, a transforming work, both for individuals and collectively, it's the work of the Spirit. And I think tapping into that, submitting to that is necessary.
0: You know, actually, the weekend that Crap hit the fan about George Floyd that end of May of 2020. I was at a regional gathering of Quakers called Northern Yearly Meeting, and there was a years long process where we've been trying to find our role in this work. And we had just that day come to a resolution. And again, this is years of work to clarify how we're going to do this and what we're going to do to be an actively anti racist group. Now, mind you, Quakers always have this long history, of opposing racism, slavery, and everything like that, but this was a specific, how do we do this here today in our world? We made that decision, and then the news hit about George Floyd, and all of that came out. It felt so spirit-led. It felt like spirit was moving us, and again, we're moving slowly because we do it in the Quaker way, but Wow. One of the phrases that you use in the book, and part of our dedication was to be actively anti-racist. And one of the things you refer to in the book is the difference between a bystander and a withstander. And I think that our decision was to become very actively withstanders at that. Talk about the differences you lay out between them, bystanders and withstanders.
1: Yeah, you know, that that idea came as i was writing and i said no that this there's got to be something different to describe what she did and we throw around that term bystander and, and and my idea of a bystander is passive there's a passivity there and they didn't choose they happened to be on the scene and something happened near them where they could witness but a withstander is not passive is active a withstander is one resisting to withstand something is to resist that force but also withstanding to stand with uh, someone who's vulnerable, someone who's affected by that force. So in both of those ways, Darnella Frazier and a couple of others were withstanders. They weren't just looking along as they passed or standing afar and happen to witness this trauma. They were actively engaged in trying to stop the trauma, to stop the event, trying to prevent death. And I think that's the kind of that that next step that both individuals and groups can take is what do I do to actively engage and counter, go against that which is oppressive? That comes with risks. It comes with loss, loss of relationships, loss of comfort, loss of what you thought you knew, right? What you thought, how you thought things were, that is now gone. That video- showed a lot of people what you thought you knew is no longer the case. Now it's Mm -hmm. forcing us to have to rethink and it's forcing us to have to think about now, who do I become? That's a good, that's a question. Who do we become post-George Floyd? Exactly. You can't unsee it. And we say George Floyd, but there's Arbery Mm -hmm. right before that. And we saw the video. George Floyd was just Closer, we it was like right there in our face. We could hear his voice, whereas Arbery was off in the distance, so it was a it was, but it was still impactful. But who do we become individually and collectively? Post George Floyd, who do I become? Who do I want to become? Mm-hmm. That's the question. Before I do anything, who do I want to become? Who do we want to
0: become? I'm pretty clear about what my answer is to that, and I'm so thankful for your book leading us in that direction. There's a whole section I haven't referred to hardly at all now, which is about the pioneers of black filmmaking. There's a whole transformation that had to happen. There's an empowerment that had to happen. Can you just mention some people like Oscar Michaud or any of the others that I'm afraid— most people know nothing about. And they will know if they get Phil Allen Jr.'s book, The Prophetic Lens.
1: Yes. Well, you know, I didn't know anything about Oscar Micheaux until I started writing the book. And a filmmaker actually told me about him. Oscar Micheaux, the thing that was, was beautiful was not that he was just making films, but there was a purpose behind the filmmaking. It was to disrupt the narrative about what was presented about black people, not just targeting the narratives that white folks had, had created about black folks, but also targeting black people so they could see themselves in a different light so that they can internalize something different. You know, he is someone who started off the same way many, many black folks did back then. Poverty was, was his context. Discrimination, segregation was his context. Well, he worked his way up now that everyone's not going to, it's not that easy Everyone's not going to just work their way up and, and, and make it. But he was one who did. And he got into a position where he used his platform to begin to show Black folks the possibilities. Again, who you can become. Fast forward and you start to see the same types of purpose behind the filmmakers, John Singleton, Gordon Parks. They wanted to disrupt narratives that had been created about the Black community. And they wanted to create new ones and alternative narrative to evoke an alternative consciousness so that we can internalize something different so that white folks and non other non-black people other people of color can also internalize a different narrative about us and we're still trying to do that to this day and spike lee and ava duvernay um, continued that same path and i think at the end of the day as i said earlier the creation of white this idea of white as an identity is a narrative meaning was attached to white bodies, lighter bodies meaning was attached to darker bodies. And a narrative was created about that. And we've been forever trying to undo that narrative.
0: So we've hit just a few points throughout the book. The prophetic lens, the camera and moral black agency from MLK to Darnella Frazier. It occurred to me that I am not sure what you hope your listeners will do after this. I'm pretty clear that you want them to get rid of some of that past programming, the ways that we see and, you know, we, the whole story we have around white or blackness. I'm clear about that. But I was wondering if you were in part thinking that everybody should pick up a camera and get working. I mean, we need to capture these things more often. What are you hoping people do once they put down the book? What should they pick up?
1: Well, you know, so often the question is now, what do I do? If there's any doing, I want people to sit in it. I want people to be willing to grieve first. I talk about it in my first book, Open Wounds, when people say, you know, what do I do next? And there's these four L's that came to mind. My preacher alliteration hat came on when I wrote this. Listen, learn, lament, and labor. The first three are the most important because the first three helps us become someone different or a different people. See, it takes a new humanity to create a new community. So I don't know if I really want anyone to walk away ready to do anything as much as become conscious of and want to be someone different, right? Because we want to sk- we skip that part. Every time, you know, after George Floyd, I did a video talking about it. So many people would text me and message me like, what do I do? What, what do I do? What do I do? What do I need to do? And I'd, I would say nothing right now sit in it like I am, grieve, feel it. If I'm talking to someone in the church, allow the spirit to do something different in you. Because if you go to do something right away right now and you haven't become someone different, you're gonna compound the issue. Because this is a 400 plus year issue for African-Americans, even longer for indigenous people in this country. So what makes you think you're gonna go out and do something tomorrow or next month that hasn't already been thought about? And I think the lament piece, the grieving, sitting in it, you know, maybe that's why we can talk about Pentecost is what it is. But maybe from the, the resurrection to the ascension, why didn't Jesus just resurrect, let a few people see him and then go ascend? <laughs> or what about the death to the, the resurrection? Those three days. Why not? He was dead. They buried him. And the next day he's out. I, I think that there's something about space to grieve. Space to sit in it Space to reflect That is antithetical to who we are as a nation Historically We're a get right back up and get to work And be tough and move on I want people to sit in it Mm -hmm. And be willing to become Because there's so many resources out there There's so many different things you can do You can give, you can serve, you can volunteer You can do a whole lot of stuff But become someone different Become a different people So we can have a different community Or else we're going to have these same conversations For the next generation
0: You're preaching exactly what's already in my heart. There's a reason I'm a Quaker. It's because we do sit, wait for God to speak to us, be changed, and then you go out and change the world. Maybe
1: I'm a Quaker, too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You'd be welcome any day. In any case, folks, uh, there's so much more that you can get from the book, The Prophetic Lens, by Phil Allen Jr. Please go to his website, philallanjr.com, and check out his previous book, Open Wounds." follow up, read this book, then sit down, let it change you and go out and change the world. And Phil, I thank you so much for doing this labor of love and spirit and change of pain, all of this to make this world a better place. Thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action.
1: Thank you so much. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with you. I appreciate it.
0: And again, website com is on northernspiritradio.org. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Meet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo of our ears.